This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Crashes which disproportionately hurt and kill older pedestrians top the agenda. This past Monday, when Libby Snymer was joined by Fightback's Zoomer squad, at least 24 pedestrians over the age of 60 have been killed in Toronto so far this year, out of a total of 37. And recent fatal crashes have been hit and runs. Weighing in on this disturbing trend, Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, Zoomer Media Vice President, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Not only did I abide by all of the laws on the road, I probably went a little bit slower than I needed to be in some of these zones. And I was thinking, you know, every morning I pass by a school zone and the law when you're driving in a school zone is that you drive at 40 kilometers an hour. And I, you know, I got to be honest, I'm not sure if I've always obeyed that law. Certainly when I was younger, I might not have. Now that I have a daughter whom I adore and love, as I drive through these school zones, I think, you know, there are people that love these children as much as I love my daughter. Mm. And if only people that were driving through these zones realized that they were putting these loved ones at risk, maybe they would go the speed limit. And so, again, you know, when I think about people disobeying the rules of the road, I would just encourage everyone to think about the people that they love. And if they could see themselves, you know, if they saw a loved one be treated the way that sometimes they treat others on the road, maybe they would think twice. I heard the chief of police commenting and he was saying the key to the whole thing is education. You know, we heard last week they approved another million bucks in the budget for enforcement. But the chief was saying he didn't think that this was going to make a huge difference, that it's education. And he talked about education at mid-block crossings where a lot of these crashes mm-hmm occur. But, you know, if you've got, I think, in places like Scarborough, one and a half, two, you know, kilometers between lights, how can you blame people for mid-block crossings? Well, if you're, if he's talking about educating the pedestrians as a solution, I think it's a measure. Certainly, the more we know, the more we do, the more aware we are to protect your own life as a pedestrian. And you could argue I shouldn't have to do that. But if I do have to do that, then okay, I should be equipped. But to your point, let me enforcement. How do you get your driver's license in the first place and hit a pedestrian and drive away? I mean, it's it's enforcement. It's it's very severe imbalance between who's going to win between a car and a pedestrian. But how do you educate or enforce someone who's in a rush to get home and it's dark and snowy and they run a they run a yellow? Like, how do you enforce it? It's a snap decision made at a last moment. But the thing is, is the threat of severe penalty has to be there. Yeah. Right. And if they think they're going to get away with it unscathed, they'll continue to do it. But you also get these chain reactions where you really have no choice but to hope that the drivers are sensible. I mean, we are here in Liberty Village. I go home usually up Dufferin Street. The number to your point of left turns where the third guy in winds up having to turn on a red light because the first two maybe got through 
heading north here on an amber light. He's going in on the red light. At that last moment, a pedestrian yeah. is darting across the right. street against the red light. Right. He's stuck. He's not going to hit the pedestrian. Meanwhile, the oncoming traffic has been released five seconds ago. Everyone's honking. And everybody's honking at everybody. And then he will maybe make his turn and not hit anybody. But is he scarred by that? Does he he decide never to repeat that? I mean, there are places where, never mind the the third guy, the first guy. Yeah. And when I'm going to turn left, (laughs) I always wait and see because uh, uh, looking, because the people going straight will sometimes, after a yellow, they'll just put on the gas and rush through the intersection when you might think that somebody else. And also in terms of, I remember on, tell me if I was in the wrong, I was crossing the street, I was on foot, and there was a green light, but also with an arrow. And I crossed the street because I think that's a right of way for me. And people started yelling at me. Mm. Right. Because they have the advanced green to turn. Right. So there shouldn't be any pedestrians in well, the intersection. Well, I guess so that I maybe was wrong. that goes to, inter- to education again. But cause... Okay. My bad. <laughs> well, but people know, right, whether or not to cross on a red or not. So I think for me, the key here is enforcement. And the key is also ensuring that there are penalties in place and mechanisms to make sure we know when people are behaving this way. And when they do, there is a severe penalty fine associated with it. Marissa Lennox of CARP, Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The terror attack on London Bridge a week ago Friday is being seen as a warning for all of us in the free world as we head into the Christmas season. The 28-year-old attacker who killed two people launched the attack when he was at an event for ex-cons. He had been released from jail early after serving less than half his sentence for terrorism, even though the judge noted he would likely be a danger even after after serving a full sentence. And it appears he had also gone through some type of de-radicalization process. What does this mean for the rest of us? Libby was joined by Mubin Sheikh, former undercover operative with CSIS and the RCMP, and Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants. I think the bigger question here is whether or not people convicted terrorist offenses, whether it's plots that they were planning and foiled or plots that they were successful in doing should, in fact, be released early. And I think there'd be a lot of people asking that very question. Is a guy that the judge felt 100% was going to reoffend, i.e. commit another terrorist attack or plan another terrorist attack, even if he had fulfilled his, his full sentence, which begs the question why he was released early. What was the mechanism? What was the assessment tool? What was behind the decision-making as to why this guy should be walking the streets of London free? And as a result, two people are dead. Mubin? You know, the first part is, of course, the fact that he was only, you know, he only served half his sentence. Uh, The problem was that the U.K. government changed their laws shortly after he had pled guilty and was convicted accordingly. He was given 16 years, but then was released, you know, halfway through his sentence. So that's, of course, problem number one. Problem number two is he had these restrictions on him. And I don't know in whose infinite wisdom they decided, let's, you know, let's take off that restriction just for him to attend this conference. And it just shows, I mean, it's the worst case scenario you could think of. Uh, a guy who, you know, they're kind of rushing in to say, oh, yeah, he's de-radicalized. 
uh, without really understanding, you know, the limits to de-radicalization. And both Phil and I, of course, are hyper-skeptical on that and agree. For him to then attack and kill two of the people that were involved in helping him through those years just shows you the kind of mentality that we're dealing with with these kinds of prisoners. Are people here, Phil, putting too much stock into that? We hear the Prime Minister talking about it, other people, oh yeah, let's just de-radicalize them. I don't know what de-radicalization even means, let alone how you do it. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people that truly eject or, or reject the ideology that got them there in the first place, but the biggest problem with this is How do you know? You simply don't know for certain if somebody has truly recanted or retracted their views. I don't want to to reject that these people are, you know, they're sincere in in trying to do this, but I think we're really in the Wild West territory when it comes to what these things work. And, you know, the fact that this guy did this at a so-called, you know, rehabilitation or de-radicalization session is really going to call into question all the programs. And the UK has been doing this for a lot longer than we have here in Canada, Libby, and clearly it didn't work on this occasion which is going to mean people are going to say, hmm, does it ever really work? Mubin, what about the Christmas factor, which, I don't know, Islamic extremists might call a crusader holiday or something like that? Yeah, of course, Christmas is a favored time of attack. Uh, obviously, there are so many soft targets around. Many people are out with their children. Uh, I am, of course, expecting uh, such an attack, of course, with the death of Baghdadi, or his suicide anyway. Uh, with his death, the, the attempts by ISIS members to show that they're still in the fight. Mm. You know, this recent attack on London Bridge and an ISIS taking credit for it, of course. Uh, they are definitely plotting and planning such attacks right now. Don't be surprised if we do wake up, you know, on Christmas Day with news of an attack. And, of course, New Year's Eve is uh, shortly thereafter, of course. Mm-hmm. So all security protocols will be in place in as much as it's possible to prevent, you know, that one guy from getting through. Uh, and again, I just want to re- reiterate what Phil was saying about the de-radicalization component. I myself used to be quite the proponent of it, but then I started to see, you know, the kind of people that are doing it. I really wasn't impressed or convinced of their qualifications. In I think in this case in London, and, and if I can say it this way, you have some academic types who are, you know, who are trying to show that, you know, their understanding is the correct one and they're rushing and they're haphazardly claiming that people are de-radicalized when they're not. And look, it's, it's, listen, I myself had a per, a personal example. I was a supporter of the extremist cause once upon a time, but understand that my de-radicalization was a natural organic process. We're talking about people who are in custodial settings uh, where basically the radicalization is either being forced onto them or they themselves see it as a way to say, hey, let me just say what they want me to say, check off all the boxes, claim I'm de-radicalized, and try to get me out sooner uh, than my sentence calls for. So this exactly. this is the problem, and this is what we need to look at. Mubin Sheikh, former undercover operative with CSIS and the RCMP, and Phil Gursky, president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants.
On Monday, Doug Ford hosted his fellow premiers and territorial leaders for a meeting in Mississauga. They all agreed they want more money for health care from Ottawa and a radical rethink to the fiscal stabilization program that helps provinces facing a short-term cash crunch. There was also an agreement to push the federal Liberals to allow provinces to opt out of a national pharmacare program. Many observers were watching Ford, who has softened his image since re-emerging after the federal election campaign when he was mostly absent. Libby was joined to discuss the Premier's meeting, among other topics, with our Tuesday strategy panel. Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto. Karen Stintz, former City Councillor and current CEO of Variety Village. And John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner Fleischmann Hillard High Road. I thought they were quite strong in their unanimity on a number of fronts, uh, which is not usually seen when it comes to first ministers or, or premiers in, in normal cases. But I thought that on pharmacare, they were pretty strong with respect to, you know, making sure that the federal government was clear that they wanted to opt out if there was any intention of the national uh, government going with pharmacare across the board. They wanted the provinces a chance to opt out for that. And I thought the stabilization or the equalization payment stuff was was really strong. Strong, led by Alberta, supported by Scott Moe and others, but it was a strong signal that that you know I think this prime minister is going to have a bit of a challenge, and over the next number of years, however long this this minority government lasts for, with respect to intergovernmental, interprovincial relations, because a lot of them are strong and they have a sense of direction that I thought is going to cause some problems for the prime minister down the road. You mentioned pharmacare. I mean, my read on the Liberals on pharmacare is that they were not going to move on this. Anytime soon. Anyway, they keep talking about it, but I, I don't think they're moving on it. No, it's an expensive program. And I think it's also complicated by the fact that some people have coverage, some mm-hmm. people don't. But I don't actually think it's a pressing issue for many Canadians. But I, I do think that on the Premier's conference, I think what will be interesting moving forward particularly in light of Andrew Scheer's problems with his potential leadership issues swirling about. Although the the Conservatives are the official opposition, until they get themselves organized, they can't be an effective opposition. But what's interesting now is with the premiers seemingly united on a number of fronts, they become the de facto opposition for this minority government. And the Prime Minister will need to pay attention to the provinces and the, the premiers in a way that maybe others haven't had to because of the regional disagreements that might take place. In this case, the regions have come together and have come up with a common front. So it's a quite interesting dynamic in the federal relationship with the provinces. Charles, do you agree with that? No, ho, ho, hold the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted festive, Libby, so I had to call okay, that Okay, good, good. No, I don't disagree necessarily with either of my colleagues. I would say that Council of the Federation meetings, the so-called gathering of provincial and territorial premiers, happen once a year. And having been to a couple of them, I can tell you they are snoozy affairs. There is a lot of talk. There is a lot of interesting discussion about important issues, as there was yesterday. But if you're expecting the premiers to come together and actively coordinate amongst themselves what the national agenda is going to be, whether it's on pharmacare, whether it's on transfer payments, that's just unrealistic. It's just not the way our federation works. These relationships tend to be bilateral between individual premiers and the prime minister. The other thing I would say about the premiers coming together and forming the so-called resistance, that that struck me as the, the infamous McLean's cover, which had Premier Ford and Premier Kenny, and I can't remember who else, except 
Scott Andrew Loy, Shear. Andrew yeah. Shear was part of, of the mm. resistance, and it, that, so that's the most interesting dynamic of all, which is whether Premier Ford or Premier Kenny might be interested in taking uh, Mr. Shear's job in the next uh, six months or so. Charles, were you surprised by this poll? Like, I would have thought that uh, the result of Doug Ford's charm offensive, you know, would show up in polling, but the Leger poll, a new Leger poll, found that almost 70% of Ontarians have a negative opinion of him and 26% have a positive view. I mean, he's got time, but were you surprised by that number? I don't buy that poll because, you know, Doug Ford really came out of nowhere in early 2018 as a result of what happened to his predecessor's travails, shall we say, in his leadership of the Ontario PC party. And Doug Ford was a relatively unknown commodity when he first became premier, despite having been through a a very truncated leadership campaign and the subsequent election campaign campaign. And he, by most people's admission, had a very difficult first year. I don't think he necessarily had the staff around him that he needed. And there was a bit of, you know, shoot first, ask questions later style to the way his government did business. They've clearly made a turn. I mean, staying out of the crossfire of the federal election may not have been all that great for the federal conservatives in retrospect, but probably served Doug Ford quite well. And he's clearly turned a corner. I mean, there is a kindler, gentler Doug Ford that is on evidence to everyone. And so talk to me about polls that will be happening a year from now or as we get closer to the next Ontario election. I think those will have a lot more to say on the subject. Charles Bird, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco, Fightback's Tuesday strategy panel. This is the best of Fightback on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Did you give back this past Tuesday? It was the seventh annual Giving Tuesday in Canada, an idea pioneered in New York as a kind of antidote to the two previous days when we're encouraged to indulge ourselves and our loved ones on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Appropriately on Giving Tuesday, a new report came out revealing more people with jobs are relying on food banks for their groceries. It says the number of people with full or part-time jobs using food banks has jumped 27% over the past three years. It also says people over the age of 25 and post-secondary graduates are increasingly represented among the province's minimum wage workers. Joining Libby's Nimer to discuss, Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank, and Jody Taylor, Toronto team lead for Giving Tuesday Canada. We're so excited this year that the message has really gotten out about Giving Tuesday. We want to build on our successes of 2018 and really encourage the giving back with kind deeds, kind words, not just monetary. Plus, monetary is okay. (laughs) Monetary is okay. Do you have a a target in terms of an increase or a dollar amount or anything like that? No, really. Every act of kindness is another act of kindness that we might not have seen yesterday. And Neil, does Giving Tuesday help the food bank as well, I would imagine? Well, it absolutely does. You know, this is is the time of year where people often think about uh, giving back. and, uh, And I'm glad that there's Giving Tuesday. At the same time, my hope is that it's the start of people giving a, a monthly gift, perhaps, mm-hmm. to their, their favorite charity, charities that are working to make sure that everybody uh, has access to food or access to shelter, that we all, you know, this is just an outward expression, in my mind, of our inward uh, Canadian values. And Giving Tuesday reflects that beautifully. And uh, But we can make Giving Tuesday happen 52 times a year. It is quite shocking 
to see, you know, the numbers that you've accumulated on the use of food banks, mm-hmm. because it's not just people who've hit a bump in the road where they're maybe not working. It's increasingly difficult to make a go of it. Absolutely. Here's a couple of quick statistics uh, for you. Once every 10 seconds, somewhere in Ontario, an individual visits a food bank. Once every 10 seconds. In Toronto, we we surpassed a, a number that we didn't want to last year, where there were over a million food bank visits. And from a myth-busting perspective, 44% of individuals who are making use of food banks have a post-secondary education. And wow. You, don't, you just don't think about that and and just how difficult it is for an individual. They've done everything supposedly right, and yet the cost of living in our city, uh, it just exceeds the income that's available to them. And so I, I feel very blessed to be able to be part of an organization that will not only help on a emergency food basis, but also works towards long-term uh, solutions through advocacy. I was looking at, at some of the numbers on the percentage that a lot of people have to pay for their rent, and it was well over 70%. And if you are spending 70% on your rent, what's left over, obviously, is is very little. The average food bank user, just going on, on that, Libby, the average food bank user has $7.83 to survive on per day. So you think about one trip to the food bank or taking your kids off to school. Well, that's that, it, it's going to cost you seven bucks to get there. In, in transportation, and yeah. And, and so you got $1.83. As a result, we, we make an effort at this time of year to raise awareness of the issues that people are facing and rely on, on the generosity and are deeply grateful for individuals that make a contribution to the Daily Bread Food Bank or to other organizations. If you are looking for somewhere to donate, and we have a partner called CanadaHelps.org, and it is a safe convenient, fast way of searching for charities, of giving your money. You can actually buy a gift card to Mm -hmm. give to someone else so that they can choose the charity to which they would like to make the donation. One of the things that I I, I love about it is it tracks your donations throughout the year. So there are multiple charities that I I give to, and it's letting me know on a regular basis, how have I done versus the year prior? Mm -hmm. And challenging myself to make sure that I am generous, and it it records it every single year, and it's, it's, it's an interesting tally as things go through. Any very quick advice you can give to people who are trying to decide among the Mm 80,000-plus charities Mm -hmm. in Canada? I would say go look at givingtuesday.ca and go and look at the partners, um, uh, community partners, or go to canadahelps.org and search that way. But it's great resources to just narrow in where you'd like to spend your time or money. And giving to something that you're passionate about. If, if poverty alleviation, uh, affordable housing, if these are the things that, that inspire you, then go and volunteer. You know, have a look at the, at the actual charity and visit the people. Give them a call and see how the money is going to be spent. Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank, and Jody Taylor, Toronto team lead for Giving Tuesday Canada. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Alex in Brampton phoned to give an explanation for why some drivers aren't stopping after a hit-and-run collision. I think that one of the reasons why people do that is that they're, first of all, in a hurry. Secondly, they don't really want to get involved in this because... First of all, they'd have to stop and then call the police and wait for the police 
And is there then an onus on them to provide some kind of care to that victim or whatever? I understand, you know, it's not an act of decency is required, but I think people just don't want to get involved. Barbara in Toronto called about a personal traffic enforcement experience. I was waiting for my friend to come out of the medical building and a police officer came and gave me a $150 ticket. I didn't see that you're not supposed to stop between four and six. You know, later, as I was driving my friend home, I saw all these cars making illegal U-turns in the middle of the street, going through red lights. I saw a stop sign that I stopped at, and other people just passed me by. And I thought, this is unbelievable. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Mary in Etobicoke, who phoned to comment on Mayor John Tory's plan to hike property taxes to pay for transit and housing. I am a senior, and I become very offended with these councillors who must think that we are foolish pertaining to taxes if we can't afford to pay them, defer them. Hello, they still have to be paid, either by us as of now or by our children in the future. This is foolish talk. Let's talk sensibly here and language that people like you're not trying to put things off. And also, on that same tangent with the councillors, why have they not all along set money aside? I realize it can't be to the extent of the work we need done now, but some of it, just like we homeowners have to do, we have to maintain our homes. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackatzoomer.ca. And follow us on Twitter at FightBackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.